you look at the game last night and you think to yourself, this Manchester City team are going to be the first Premier League team to score 10 goals in a match. It is going to happen. We are going to reach that high water mark. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The Saturday panel on Off the Ball. Happy Christmas to you all. I'm John Duggan. Shane Hannon with me here. This is a special Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk for your Christmas Day. I always say at the top of each show, I hope you're doing all right and I always mean it. And on this day of days, we really hope you're having a nice time at home or if you're out and about, whatever you're doing, spending time with loved ones, exchanging presents already, tucking into the turkey and ham, phoning a friend, or even listening to the radio, listening to ourselves this afternoon. So Shane and myself are with you through to five o'clock. We're going to look back between now and four on the sporting highlights of 2021. And then from four until five, we're going to play out highlights of one of the more memorable Saturday panels we had this year back in May with Sonia O'Sullivan. John Tracy and Lizzie Lee. So Shane, have you been enjoying your Christmas? I've been loving Christmas, John. Although, um, you know, it's it's a different Christmas, uh, quite like last Christmas. But um, you, you kind of make the most of the little moments, the uh, the couple of quiet cans, the meeting up with a couple of friends, um, watching Home Alone, the traditional stuff. So it's been a grand old Christmas. Yeah, as long as we have our health, I think is the main exactly. thing, Shane. What we're going to do is we're going to pick five uh, sports and memorable moments from the year and have a chat about them and. Uh, and look forward to reminiscing a bit. I, I'm going to start off. So I'm going to do the uh, odd numbers, usually the even numbers, Shane, mm-hmm. out of the 10. So um, I'm going to start off with, I think the biggest story for me of the year was Rachel Blackmore winning uh, the Grand National and winning uh, the leading jockey prize at Cheltenham. So this would be a no-brainer generally for Kelly Harrington or Fintan McCarthy or Paula Donovan, Olympic gold medal winners, because we don't have any of them in our history in the country. But Rachel Blackmore, what I think she did, Shane, was off the scale 32 years of age turned pro in 2015 took her six months to ride a winner and then in 2021 a few years later she has ridden more winners at the Chatham festival six than the entire uk trained horses and then goes on to the grand national and there was a movie in the 40s for hollywood done called national velvet with elizabeth taylor in it about this young girl who trains and rides a horse in the grand national and wins and then there's controversy about it but there's no controversy about Rachel Blackmore winning on Manetta Times, her elation when she crossed the winning post. I know, Shane, we were there in the day on Off the Ball when it, when it broke the story. And this story is just fantastic because in 1839, Lottery won the first Grand National. We're talking 170 years of this, 180 years of this, of this great race. And this is global news. And for somebody who was late to the game and worked so hard and got support of the likes of Henry de Bromhead and Eddie O'Leary, given her the chance and she's taken the chance and I really think for me it's one of the greatest achievements in Irish sporting history I don't know if you'd agree with that 100% um, and like I remember that day in studio John in, in, in the off the ball studios as we uh, I think it was during an ad break when when the race actually came to a, came to a close and we, we were kind of watching the the final moments and we kind of mentioned it earlier that day in the news round I think we said look Manila Times has a chance and any horse with uh, Rachel Blackmore aboard certainly has a chance um but we because of history because of the fact that no woman had ever won it you almost think oh is it ever going to happen how long is this going to take but i I, hairs are standing on the back of my neck when 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 she crossed the line um and the great thing about it was that it surprised nobody the fact that rachel blackmore went and and shattered this glass ceiling of, of horse racing and i mean it was just one of those moments and the thing about rachel blackmore no airs or graces about her whatsoever. Um, there's so much modesty and you kind of sense that from her interviews after the fact, um, even after her incredible Cheltenham Festival as well, as you mentioned. And she's just someone who, like we talk about the fact that, you know, female athletes can inspire other young girls. She's inspiring young girls and young boys across Ireland to to get into horse racing. Um, not all of them will see it through, but but some of them will. Um, and that that's a testament. That's her legacy. Uh, and she's just someone who you can't help but admire uh, for everything she, she's achieved, for the way in which she conducts herself, the way she goes about it. Uh, and to see what she did this year in, in the Entry Grand National and to see her make history was, was it was a pleasure to watch it uh, and to see it, uh, not in person, but on the, te- on the television and to kind of, uh, for anyone in, in Entry, I can only imagine what it was like for the Irish over in Entry to experience that, that, that particular moment. But um the great thing about it is, I think Maliki, Maliki Clerken wrote a great piece in the Irish Times towards the, the latter part of this year um, about the, the female athletes and what they've achieved in Irish sport in, in 2021. 
and she's right at the top of that list, as you mentioned. She's she's one of these people who has just done extraordinary things, and by the way, will continue to do extraordinary things. So, uh, yeah, uh, well-deserved, John, I think, to have Rachel Blackmore in there as uh, as one of your first picks. Yeah, and we had all the gold generation of Jockey Shane, Barry Garrity, Ruby Walsh, Paul Carberry, A.P. McCoy, not only stylish in the saddle, but also a lot of them great communicators. Mm. And we needed new stars. And racing has not had the best of years, public relations-wise. Not had the best of years. And still, even in December, there's still issues going on in racing. But I think this is the, this is the beacon. This is a global story uh, for Rachel Blackmore to be becoming the first woman to win the Grand National. And it's only significant, I think, because Katie Walsh and Nina Carberry have won Irish Grand Nationals before, but there's very, very few sports where the men and the women compete uh, alongside each other. So for her to break that ceiling, um, it's not that it's, it's, it was about gender really or anything. It was about, about the fact that she's the best. Mm. And when she was riding some of those races at Cheltenham, she rode a race on a horse called Sir Gerhard in the bumper, and she clearly stole the race and because she was riding with such confidence. She was disappointed when she didn't win the Gold Cup behind Manella into a horse she could have ridden. So... This is a person at the top of their game. doesn't matter what the gender is, but the fact that she did break the ceiling is significant. And that's why, for me, she's my number one pick uh, this year, Shane. What is your number one pick? Yeah, let's go with, uh, with another female athlete. No surprise, uh, given that the year that uh, Irish athletes and female athletes in particular have had. But uh, Kelly Harrington. Um, and really, look, I'll, I'll focus on the Olympics in general and the Irish achievements at, uh, at Tokyo, of course, delayed by a year because of the, the coronavirus pandemic. But we got there in the end. And uh, I mean, Kelly Harrington, I, like I remember the scenes in, in Dublin Airport when she came home and the great quote from her was she was looking forward to a cup of tea, a few biscuits and maybe some donuts. That was all she it was all that was on her mind after after domination, sheer domination uh, over in Japan um, and Portland Row had other plans. Portland Row was was a scene of of pandemonium uh, in, in the, the latter stages of, of Kelly's tournament and, and especially for that final. Um, I know we had our own Ashling O'Reilly out at Portland Road the morning of the of the fight. I think it was very, very early hours. It was probably five or six in the morning Irish time when when she finally took to the ring in, in that uh, gold medal bout. Um, and what, what a fight as well. I mean, she's 31 years of age and to beat uh, Beatrice Ferreira, the Brazilian, in, in, in the manner in which she did, I, I think even boxing purists would appreciate what she did in that, in that fight. So that was the women's 60 kg lightweight final. In Tokyo, Ireland's 11th ever Olympic gold medal. They're second in the 2021 Olympics, is, of course, after the rowers. Um, and just what Portland Row that, that week with the Irish flags, the tricolours, uh, the open-top bus for Kelly as she came back uh, back home. I remember uh, Kelly's father, Christy, speaking on, uh, saying it's like Christmas Eve. They're all waiting for Santa Claus. They're actually tracking in the aeroplane, like people on the, the flight radar apps, watching where Kelly Harrington was in the skies over Ireland or when she was going to land. Um Unanimous points decision in the fight itself. Only the second Irish female boxer, of course, to win an Olympic medal. We had Katie Taylor's gold, of course, uh, back in London in 2012. Um, she came strong in, in the second couple of rounds. Uh, and, and let's not forget the Brazilian fighter was the, the reigning world champion. The third time Ireland had won Olympic boxing gold, we remember Michael Carruth uh, in Barcelona at 92, which by chance was, was 29 years to the day uh, when Kelly Harrington won her, her own gold medal. An 18th boxing uh, Olympic medal in total for Ireland. That's more than half of the 34 medals we've won in total. So clearly our domination in boxing uh, showing no signs of stopping whatsoever. Um, and I remember even that the the, uh, the bronze medal bout, that the, the semi-final, if you, if you like to call it, against Sudapon Sisondi as well, that the Thai boxer, 3-2 split decision. That was a tight one as well and someone she had, uh, had uh, bouts with in the past as well. Uh, and she'd been behind on three of the five judges' scorecards after the first round against the Thai boxer. So you're thinking at that point, what does Kelly have left in the locker here? But as Kelly Harrington often does, she pulls it out of the locker, um, grew in confidence. And then it was the, the classic final, the 2018 world champion against the 20, 2019 world champion. Uh, and the Brazilian had only ever lost six fights heading into uh, that bursting into the international stage in 2017. But uh, Kelly proving herself, best lightweight in the world. I think it can't be denied. Uh, at this stage. So Kelly Harrington, certainly uh, uh, worth a mention. I should mention the rowers as well. First time since 1932. Yeah, like o o almost overshadowed in a way. You know, <laughs> normally we'd be just jumping on, yeah. through hoops about uh, Paula Donovan and Vince McCarr. Completely, completely. And given the characters that the you know, Donovan boys are and uh, to see Paul, I mean, Paul's at the top of his game and he showed that in Rio. First time since 1932, Ireland has won gold medals in two different sports at the same Olympics. So, if we have nothing to celebrate uh, after that, I don't know when you'll celebrate, but uh, Paula Donovan and Fitton McCarthy, of course, crown champions. Uh, that was the lightweight skulls. Um, George Hamilton as well, commentating on his first ever gold medal, having covered Olympics uh, for such a long time for Ireland. Um, 
so, so really a historic moment. I should mention the other medalist as well for Ireland because uh, anytime we get a medal for a country of our size, it's worth a mention. So Aidan Walsh, of course, in the boxing and the men's welterweight uh, picked up a bronze medal. And then the bronze medals for the, uh, the the rowing as well. The women's coxless four on July 28th, they picked up their bronze medals. Africa Kyo, Emer Lam, Fiona Murta and Emily Hegarty. So a successful Olympics, I think you'd have to say, John, but uh, Kelly Harrington, top of my pile. Absolutely, Shane, you're absolutely right. It was hard to go out to Tokyo with all these restrictions of COVID. Kelly Harrington, I've met her a couple of times, and I don't know the lady very well, but I think everybody will generally feel that when you when you see Kelly Harrington speaking, she just sounds. She just sounds. She's a regular person, and she's an amazing athlete. And to win that gold medal, as you say, and come from behind, it's not rare, not usual in a, an Olympic final to do that. And for so long, she's in the shadow of Katie Taylor. And Katie Taylor now is a pro doing so well, and Kelly Harrington is an Olympic champion. And you're going through all the names there, Bob Tisdall, Pat O'Callaghan, Ronnie Delaney, Michael Caruso. Katie Taylor, very few gold medals out of this country uh, since we became uh, an independent state. So it's, it's, it's a fantastic story. And hopefully in Paris, there'll be more to come. So I uh, couldn't agree with you more about our, our fantastic performance at the Olympics. Um, I'm going to go for number three with hurling mm. and Limerick's first ever two in a row. I was lucky enough to be there among the 40,000 souls in August. We were kind of half back at the time and hopefully we will be back fully again uh, next year. It was a strange day in a way because that match was over, Shane, at halftime. Limerick, Limerick scored 318 in the first half. This was hurling engineering. This was something I did not grow up watching. I grew up watching chaos when I watched hurling. I would watch a lot of physical play, uh, the, the, the slitter going into the middle of the park and the, and the battle for the breaking ball and the, the to and fro of the long puckouts and back again and to the half-back line and um, low enough scoring. Whereas what we saw, I think, from Limerick uh, was something like that. Pep Guardiola would have conjured if he was a hurling manager. Um, I do have a bit mixed feelings about it, to be honest, because uh, this has been alchemy uh, generated in an academy for 10 years, that the perfection, they, uh, only four of their scores out of the 332 uh, were not from play, which is incredible when you think about it. The lack of mistakes, the playing the ball out from the back, the precision, runners off the shoulder, the accuracy and Limerick have become uh, one of the very few counties to win now double digits. They won 10 All-Irelands. But to think about it, Shane, like between 1940 and 2018, they won one All-Ireland, 1973. And now to win three out of four is pretty sensational under John Kiley, under that great coach, Paul Connerk as well. Carl encouraged in the sports psychology. Kieran Kerry, we had him on the show. His uncle is calling uh, Keen Lynch the Messi of hurling. And some of the, the, and you'd know he had a soccer background, some of the movement and the, the flicks off the stick and everything. And it was just, it was epitomized for me, Shane, in the fact that they won 12 All-Stars. Mm. Like nine was the record. And for a defeated team in the first time in the history, the 50-year history of the All-Stars, and an All-Ireland final, not to get even a look in. But, it's right, well, like, but who are you going to leave out? Who are you going to leave out of the Limerick team? And this is the thing, and this is how good they are. So, um, 2022 is going to be really exciting. Henry Shefflin on the sideline for Galway. Brian Cody's still there. But it's going to take a lot to dismantle Limerick because the only team I've seen comparable to this Limerick team are Kilkenny and the Naughties when they won four in a row and they won all those titles under Brian Cody in other years as well. 2008, Kilkenny really uh, demolished Waterford. And this was a similar thing between Limerick and Cork. So I don't think Limerick are over their peak yet. Sport is cyclical. It will not go on forever. We saw that with the Dublin footballers. But for Limerick, and my mother's in Limerick, and I grew up going to Limerick every single weekend, and it was misery. Um, now it is bounty when it comes to their herders. And I think they're great role models. They're a nice group of lads, and uh, they're an honour to their... And, and the, the people in, of the city and the county should be really proud of, of, of the Limerick herders. They've, they've achieved some greatness now at senior level. You know? 100%. And like I think the, the, the thing about it is there's been no no arguments to the to the all stars discussion. Like, of course, some people throw up a fit when when they see certain names left off an all stars team. But the fact that twelve Limerick hurlers could get picked on an all star team, as you mentioned, and there to be little to no pushback against that, uh, it probably sums up the the sheer domination. Like you mentioned, the four points only only four points from freeze or from place balls of a of a three thirty two scoreline. That's terrifying. That's the only word for it. I mean robotic almost uh, in their in their domination and like you mentioned Paul Kinnerk I'm sure he gets and deserves to get a lot of credit uh, in what he does I know a lot of the, the Limerick players will have singled him out in different uh, interviews and stuff as well right and rightly so um, but like they have a man at the helm in John Kiley who just lives and breathes hurting like I remember being at the uh, 
the uh, 2018 hurling semi-final, that uh, great game against Cork, when Nicky Quaid made that great save, Shane Downey came on, I think scored a goal as well. Like, just amazing scenes, one of the best atmospheres I've ever experienced in sport. Um, but it was really interesting to hear an interview with John Kiley this year where he talked about, you know, after that semi-final, having to take a break, um, whether it was anxiety or just getting so overwhelmed with the emotion of an occasion like that, had to take uh, whatever it was, a few days or a week off training, let the backroom staff take training sessions. That's how much John Kiley puts his heart and soul into, into Limerick Hurling. Um, you mentioned the, the, the drought that Limerick Hurling fans have had to experience. And for that reason, you know, you're so happy for them because they, they've gone through the tough period of not winning All-Irelands for whatever it is, 40 years and more. And now, finally, they have a team that is not just an All-Ireland winning team, as we saw a number of years ago, but they are a dominant force. They're a Kilkenny of the, of the noughties. Like they, they are going to, they're going to dominate Hurling for the next number of years. And granted, yeah, another team might sneak in a win here or there, but over the next, what, six to eight years, you'd be surprised if Limerick didn't pick up four or five All-Irelands at least in that, in that time period. Um, like even Sean Finn, like I was looking at um, a story with Sean Finn there recently. He had, uh, he played a, a football match for his, um, his local soccer team, a soccer match there the, the other weekend or at some point earlier in December and scored a hat-trick. Like this is, these are the guys who are just uber talented. They, they, they could probably play volleyball or tiddlywinks or whatever it is and be, <laughs> be kings at it. That's just what they're like. Like Sean Finn is 25 years of age. He's already got four All-Stars. That, that doesn't bear thinking about. That's that's like that's scary stuff. Like it, it yeah. begin, you start to question yourself then and, and your own life choices when you see a twenty-five-year-old with with four all-stars for his uh, for his county. Quite incredible. And then you see someone like Kean Lynch, uh, as you mentioned, Kieran Kerry describing him as the the Messi of hurling. I think I'm right in saying he, he now joins only Henry Shefflin as as the multiple all or winners of the um, hurler of the year gong. Uh, but really, uh, just. A team with uber talented hurlers, and uh, they play the game in a different way. Like the neutrals were disappointed with that with that hurling final, John, because of the uh, sheer one sided domination of it. But the hurling purists can really appreciate what this Limerick team are all about. Yeah, I'm a little bit worried about the game. I, I do think the slitter travels too far. I think it's mm. easy to easy at the moment to hit a ball from 100 yards out and for it to go over. I think the arse of hurling has to a degree diminished, and maybe the boss is too easy. Maybe though, it's the fact that these guys are just so physically conditioned, so skillful now that they've just moved it to another level and, and you have to almost look at the positive side of that. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I completely agree with you that. Look, you don't know what's around the corner. It's an amateur sport. With all these things, I think the biggest challenge for Limerick will be hunger and to keep the hunger. Um, but they seem very grounded, as you correctly said, John Kiley is a great leader of that group um, and has been around a long time, uh, especially at the underage levels. So yeah, look, it's going to be a great season. And I think the Rand Robins being back next year in Munster and Leinster are going to make it a great few months up to July, that final. What is your second pick? Well, John, I've, I've mentioned, yeah, they're the, the, the tough picks. Like there's, there's probably going to be things we've left out in the year because we're only picking 10, but uh, we had to, we had to make a call and uh, go with our gut and uh, couldn't leave out the, the Paralympians and the Paralympics that the, the Irish yeah. athletes had quite, quite extraordinary. And um, we mentioned a few of them. So, Again, like I mentioned, Malachi Clerkin's piece talking about the biggest stories of 2021 belonging to Irish sports women. Probably a similar theme in the in the uh, the Paralympics in Tokyo as well. So uh, Katie George Dunleavy and Eve McChrystal, first of all, I mean they started off with the, the silver medal in the the uh, B three thousand meters pursuit. These cyclists, unbelievable speed, especially in the qualifying round. They set a new world record and then narrowly missing out on the gold medal in the final. But Let's be honest, they made up for it. Um, they got their gold medal, obliterated the field in the women's B time trial um, with a time of 42-32-07. Extraordinary time and a really, really impressive gold medal, cycling their way into the history books, essentially retaining the title they won five years previous at the uh, Rio Paralympics. So uh, to see um, Katie, George Dunleavy and Eve McChrystal do what they usually do and pick up a couple of medals at Paralympic Games was was really, really lovely to see. Uh, we had other medals as well. Uh, the hand cyclist Gary O'Reilly took bronze. Very humid conditions in the the men's H5 time trial. If you watch those races, uh, the hand cyclists, what they do is is beyond comprehension. Um, and to see what they do in, in, in humid conditions like we saw in Tokyo this summer was, it just beggars belief really. And to see an Irish person and Gary O'Reilly take home a medal uh, in that in that event was just was just fantastic. Uh, and it wasn't the only other medal we saw Jason Smith, of course, the fastest Paralympian on the planet. Um, gold in the T13 100 metres, unsurprisingly, but 
very, very close. It was a nice tense one, edged a photo finish uh, when he pipped an Algerian athlete by one hundredth of a second. So we didn't only get a, a gold medal, we got a bit of drama along with it, which was brilliant, brilliant to see. That's his sixth Paralympic title, Jason Smith, and uh, maintaining, of course, his unbeaten run in championship races. He is just something else, that man. Um, unexpected medals can be sometimes the best. So Jason Smith's is probably what you would call an expected medal. Uh, and he's he's got so good that you'd almost call it an expected gold medal. Uh, but the ex- unexpected medals can often taste the sweetest. And we had one of those in the pool uh, with the 19-year-old swimmer, Nicole Turner, uh, from County Leash, silver in the women's 50 meters butterfly event. So even her interview afterwards with Nicole Turner was, was, uh, it was just lovely. She, uh, she said, I aimed to get a medal, but to be honest, to reach the podium now with the competitiveness in there, it's not sunk in. And what she meant was the quality of the field in that 50 meters butterfly event in the Paralympics was unparalleled and uh, something we hadn't seen in previous uh, tournaments. It has to be said. Uh, So for Nicole Turner to go from kind of, you know, outwardly, saying she wanted a podium but inwardly perhaps thinking that it might be beyond her to then getting the silver medal and standing in that podium was 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 quite uh, incredible and i should mention as well uh, someone who has been an inspiration for for irish athletes uh, not just in the pool but beyond is, is ellen keen um and what a summer she had as well like one of the quotes from um, katie george dunleavy after after her race was just for kids or adults at home with a visual impairment that our success today shows you can do anything you want to do. There is nothing you can't do. This might inspire them, and I know it gives pride to people at home. I mean, Ellen Keane is someone who, who is kind of along those lines as well. So in her Paralympic final, a personal best, by the way, in a Paralympic final to take home gold. That's the stuff of dreams. Um, Klontoff woman, her fourth Paralympics, uh, made her debut back in uh, 2008 in Beijing at just 13 years of age in the Paralympics. And uh, her medal in, in Tokyo this summer was, of course, our first uh, of, of the summer. So the SBA at 100 metres breaststroke blazed through the heat, won the race in a personal best time, obliterated that mark in the final, went nearly two seconds quicker uh, to go to take gold, which just shows how much she had left in the tank. Uh, battling out with Sophie, Sophie Pascoe from New Zealand, 26-year-old, um, and Keane then taking the lead with 25 metres left, never looked back, took the gold, and she had fogged goggles as well in the final. She spoke about that afterwards. She, she said she had very little awareness of the swimmers around her, but uh, improved on her bronze medal from Rio, won her first ever gold medal. And I've mentioned the quotes that uh, Katie George Dunleavy came out with um, yeah. after her medal, but, but Ellen Keane's quotes, she really, really uh, spoke of the respect or lack of respect sometimes the Paralympic athletes have got in comparison to their Olympic counterparts. And she said, I've had difficulty getting access to the pool at times whereas the Olympians have complete access whenever they need it. I kind of hope now this gold medal, it gives me a bit more respect. There have been times when I go training, my lane has been given to lessons. It's just so frustrating. And thankfully, I don't have to deal with it too much because my coach fights my corner a lot of the time. And my coach is fighting for all the other para-athletes and para-swimmers who have access for the t- uh, to the pool. She says, it shouldn't be a fight. It should be equal respect for us and the Olympians. So to see someone like Alan Keane, um, you know, stand up and say those things after winning a gold medal was uh, deserved and uh, something I, I know she will, will change now in the waters and uh, in, in terms of respect for Paralympic athletes going forward because of, uh, because of her achievements and, and those of the other athletes in the Paralympics uh, this summer. You've encapsulated that brilliantly, Shane, about the Paralympic Games. I don't really have much to add, only to say I do think this was the year that the Paralympics pierced the consciousness of the nation mm. and the same with women's sport in that it was the year of the woman with all the achievements of the women in, in our sport and the Paralympics pierced that consciousness. And there was a member we then we John Fulham on a panel there uh, with Fiona Foley uh, and uh, Orla Barry back in the summer and on, on, the, on, the, on the Saturday panel. And one thing that kind of I remembered was, you know, Ellen Keane should be on an Olympics panel. You know, what, what, why not? If this television, I'll say a Paris coverage of the Olympics or the Paralympics and just that the separation of that needs to change. And just that they're, they are, are Olympic champions uh, at the Paralympics and they should be giving their voice and their expertise to all kinds of conversation uh, going forward you know absolutely here here um, I'm going to go with um, soccer next uh, and a few things the Republic of Ireland men's and women's team and Stephen Kenny and Vera Pau and Euro 2020 I think they're probably the three big things soccer wise this year so I really feel positive about the men's and women's teams going into 2022 um at times you wouldn't feel as positive earlier in the year, but I think now we're into the zone where it's all about results. So I do think there's a disclaimer to that statement. And I think Stephen Kenny and Vera Pau are now on the, on, on the dock. 
uh, in terms of um, you know their analysis of their of their performances. We know how bad it was for Stephen Kenny in that Luxembourg game, that Nadir back in, in March of that one 0 defeat and an empty Lansdowne Road, and it was a tenth game in charge and no victories. To the fifty thousand people that were there for the Portugal game in November, part of a run of what one defeat in nine. Um, I think the public and the fans and the players are behind this for Stephen Kenny, this project, this thing he's trying to do for us to play football, effectively, not hoofball, not a style of play that is pragmatic and only just trying to get us to the next result and maybe next tournament. It's a mixture of the two. But I think if you're playing a certain way, and honourable mentions must go to coach Anthony Barry and Gavin Bazunu, who really lit up uh, smiles on people's faces and Shane Duffy, the Renaissance man, and Caleb Robinson, who's now been able to start scoring goals. There is something building here. And it's no longer based on the short term. And the raw materials are not good. We don't have many players playing in the Premier League. So Stephen Kenny is a man of integrity. And I think people have warmed to him. And I think people understand that he wants a bit of time and he wants to build this thing. And next year with the Nations League, hopefully we can do well against Scotland, uh, Armenia and Ukraine and, and build towards the Euros. He should get the contract, in my view. And he should be given time to try and build something. Because if we're going to get to World Cups again, we're going to have to have a thread of... Uh, style of play from the senior team down to all the underage teams and all the academies and try to build a football industry in the country because we don't have one. And we need government actual support for that. We need government support just as much as they give support from the taxpayer to the Greyhound and horse racing industries and to also to GA stadiums. They need to give that now to the pathway for young players in, in Irish football. For the women, Denise O'Sullivan, Katie McCabe, leading lights in the team. Uh, obviously, the Finland result was fantastic going there and winning, and it's all about consistency. Can we keep the consistency? We've got two really big games next year, Slovakia away and Finland at home. If we can beat them, if we can get to that playoff, we're not going to get past Sweden, but to imagine the reach in the World Cup in Australia and New Zealand, how amazing would that be for the Irish women's team? Uh, for the Euros, loved it. Um, with all these things, we all get carried away. International tournaments, we almost creep up on us. We don't even think about them, and then they arrive, and then we're just completely immersed in them, and then they finish and then we forget about it <laughs> so uh, that was the way i kind of felt about euro 2020 look it was great to see christian erickson recover from that really uh, worrying cardiac arrest that was the first thing it's probably the most important thing to say from the get-go italy roberto mancini for me they were a breath of fresh air they were fantastic in the group uh, wobbled a little bit along the way to the semi-final that semi-final against spain was one of the best games of football i've seen in recent years just fantastic won that on penalties and then won on penalties against uh England in the final at Wembley. Uh, Federico Chiesa, I love him. love watching him play football. Um, Donnarumma in goal. Chiellini, Bonucci. Like, I want to see the cop show of them in 10 years' time uh, on Italian TV. And we got it onto Netflix. But I think Italy played with a huge amount of passion. They didn't qualify for the last World Cup. They reached the Euros. They won the final. And uh, they had the guts, I think, that England lacked. England lacked um, that will and that belief in themselves because England have so many talented players. They're well set up by Southgate, but they're obviously motivated. They didn't concede a goal until the semi-final. Um, but in that final, when they took the lead, they didn't go for the jugular and they paid for it. And I hope for their sake, when they get to Qatar, because England has so many talented footballers that they do themselves justice because they didn't. And obviously some of their fans disgrace themselves at Wembley as well, which is another thing to add. Uh, but that was the Euros for me. Um, Premier League-wise, Man City won that. Chelsea won the Champions League. English football, the Premier League is the global league. It is dominating the world at the moment in terms of quality. Liverpool back in the mix again for 2022. So um, I thought it was a great Euros. I don't know what you thought, Shane, but um, the 24 teams didn't seem to bother me. And there was lots of colourful uh, teams to watch. And yeah, I thought the, the, the right winner won in the end. Yeah, you summed, you summed all those up quite well. Um, and a couple of things I would add, like... The fact that I think I think we had Karen Duggan on one of the the um, shows earlier in the year on a football Saturday, and like we were talking with the Irish women's team, and and she mentioned the fact that it's great now that we're actually you know allowed to criticise and talk about Vera Pau. This is the level we've got now with quality in terms of the men's and women's team, and rightly so, we're allowed to criticise Vera Pau if she's not doing a good job, uh, and we shouldn't be afraid to do that. Uh, if any of the Irish women's players aren't playing well, we can say that it should be treated in punditry the very same as the men's sport, and rightly so. Um, luckily enough, the Irish team have been playing well. There's been no reason to criticise them. Katie McCabe is tearing it up in the Women's Super League. Um, they've got the result, as you mentioned, against Finland. Uh, so things really looking up. And also to get the crowds that they're getting in Tallis Stadium. And, you know, recognisable faces now. Like, if you if young girls see Louise Quinn or Katie McCabe or Denise O'Sullivan or, um, you know, Anya Gorman or any of these players 
walking in the shops in Dublin or wherever uh, at any stage, they're going to be recognized now. And that's that's fantastic. And that's because they're on television. It's because uh, they're in the Women's Super League. A lot of them are playing their football at the top tier. Um, and it's because they, they, they're so giving of their time as well and, and being covered properly and extensively in media. So uh, that's a positive. Uh, the, the men's team as well. Yeah, you, you've, you've covered it. You've covered it greatly there. Like the Portugal game, I was at it. The atmosphere was electric. Might have been uh, the most exciting nil-nil I've ever been at potentially. But um, it just goes to show that you need to stick with the manager. We were often criticised on Saturdays, John, you know yourself, when you come through the text. <laughs> Kenny uh, FM. <laughs> Stephen Kenny <laughs> FM. And that's that was a common thread throughout 2021. But I mean, you, you got to be patient with managers. You cannot just keep sacking and sacking. Like uh, we, we spoke about it before. Who was the, who was there there to take the, take the job? Do you put Sam Allardyce, Chris Hutton in the, in the, in the job? I don't think so. Um, and, and I think Stephen Kenny has proved eventually uh, that he deserves that that new contract. Of course, it took time, took a little bit of time for his, his style of play to bed in. It's going to take a little bit more time, but um, I'd like to see him, uh, you know, take us, have a full qualification campaign and see where he goes with it. Um, Euro 2020, yeah, high drama. Um, you're probably someone like myself who we had the wall chart up on the wall at home here in Monaghan and crossing off the scores and keeping track of the teams as, as the tournament went on. Ordinarily after a tournament, I just throw those in the bin. Um, but there was something special about Euro 2020 that just kind of stuck in my craw that I that I really, really loved. Um, we kept the wall chart this year. Myself, my brother, and my dad, we said, <laughs> we we're going to keep this keep, wall chart. Keep keep the remaining wall charts for the rest of your life. And yeah, every 20 years' time, you'll have five or six tournaments and wall exactly. charts. Exactly. Stick them on eBay or something. But no, it was, it was one of those tournaments that just... I'll remember, I'll remember forever. There was the high drama of um, the penalties in the final. You mentioned the ugly scenes in Wembley, of course, as crowds sur- the crowds uh, surged in without tickets. Uh, you mentioned the Ericsson incident and Simon Kjær, that the Belgian or the Danish captain covering himself in glory and in, in showing the yeah. leadership a captain shows in, in kind of um, uh, shielding his uh, his uh, teammate and friend from uh, from the gawking eyes of the crowd and the media. Um, June twenty eighth was a day which will live in in my mind for quite some time. That was the day of the two games when uh, I think it was both the last 16 games, Switzerland beat France on penalties in Bucharest, Spain beat Croatia after extra time in Copenhagen. And it was two of the best uh, games I've ever seen. You already mentioned the semi-final, the cracking semi-final between Spain and Italy, but those two games on the same day, something, something about it just really uh, lives in my memory and, and, and will forever. Of course, the Italian flair and dominance as well was, was, uh, it was enough for me to go out and buy an Italy jersey, an Italy Euro 2020 jersey. That's how much I love them. Um, and the only other thing I'd mention, and we probably shouldn't mention it, is uh, the European Super League. Of course, 2021 will be the year the year that was brought up into our consciousness. And uh, here's hoping we never hear from it again. And in 2022, it uh, it no longer exists in our uh, in our consciousness. Well, so much has happened that it's easy to forget that Man United fans stormed the stadium and uh, uh, the match was called off. Uh it's going to be a great World Cup next year in Qatar. Brazil are really well managed. It's Messi, swan song. France and Spain, as you say, even though the Nations League game were fantastic. England, Italy, I can't wait for that. About Ireland, I just want to say, why do we watch sport? Why do we, it's to get off our seat and to have that childlike innocence. And the game, as Danny Blanchflower said, is about glory and it's about enjoying the spectacle. And that's why I think I'm, I'm positive about the Republic of Ireland. What is your next picture? Next one, John, uh, is the Formula One. So, uh, <laughs> what a Hamilton River stop and which camp are you in? <laughs> this is the thing. Like, I even spoke before the final race in Abu Dhabi and said, I, I'm, in, I'm in neither camp here. I just want a dramatic finish. And uh, I probably cursed the whole thing. I shouldn't have said anything because um, I think we got, we got more drama than we possibly could have, uh, could have hoped for. Um, uh, how do you feel? How do you feel now about it? Do you feel uh, good about it? I, I, you know, you're you're the resident Formula One nut and off the ball. Are you are you are you have a good feeling after what you saw in Abu Dhabi? Because I thought a, it was the Netflix. I thought it was the Netflixization of sport. Yeah, and that, that's a fair point. Um, to sum up how I feel about it, probably like for these topics we're discussing today, we all kind of went off and did our little bits of research and took down our few notes. When it gets to uh, Verstappen versus Hamilton here on my screen, John. It's absolutely blank because I, I didn't know what, the, I, I still don't know how I feel about it. I'm still on the fence in terms of, uh, look, I was chatting to someone in, in, uh, in the shops the other day about this, another fellow Formula One fan here in Monaghan. And I asked them how they felt about it. And they said, there's been rumors and talk about, is this going to be good for Formula One? Is it going to be bad for Formula One? The reality is in 90, 90 something days when uh, the 2022 season kicks off in Bahrain, there will be so many more people watching the season from the outset because of what happened 
in that last race in Abu Dhabi. So call it the next Netflixization of sport, absolutely. And it did kind of cross the boundary between sport and entertainment for sure, especially in that final race in Abu Dhabi. But in terms of increasing the interest in Formula One, and we, we do have to thank Netflix and Drive to Survive for, for bringing a lot of fans back into Formula One. A lot of the, even dormant Formula One fans who maybe even in Ireland were, were fans of Jordan and uh, Eddie Irvine and, and, and you know the Irish Lynx and Eddie Jordan in years gone past and through the 90s and early 2000s. They've now come back to the sport. A lot of them have had forgotten uh, who was on the grid. They didn't know any of the drivers beyond Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen um, and maybe some of the older guys like Alonso and Vettel. But all of a sudden, all of these drivers, like two years ago, if you'd asked me who are the Haas drivers, not a clue. Now I can tell you it's Mick Schumacher and Nikita Mazepin. I mean, you, you, we can list off the drivers, and I'm not the only one, at the drop of a hat now because of things like Drive to Survive. Um, the final race itself in Abu Dhabi left a strange taste in the mouth in that Hamilton was the better driver on the day by all accounts, straight from the first corner. Uh, overtaking Max Verstappen, who had been on pole, leading for, what, 50-51 of the opening 57 laps or something. And then that final lap, lap 58, uh, pure carnage. Um, you know, and, and the fact that Michael Massey, the FIA race director, ultimately allowed only five of the lapped cars to overtake the safety car, um, that was what led Max Verstappen to being directly behind Lewis Hamilton for that final lap on newer tyres, on softer tyres, which gave him the opportunity to go and win it and essentially Michael Massey was saying here's a lap for the championship so could have finished the race behind the safety car and uh, by default if he had allowed all of the cars to overtake the safety car it would have meant that essentially Lewis Hamilton would have won the championship because it would have taken a lap for all this all the cars to overtake the safety car but as it turned out he only allowed certain cars. And it was interesting, I was reading something actually within the last number of weeks, uh, John, as well, that a very similar incident occurred, a quite similar incident uh, occurred at the Eiffel Grand Prix in Germany um, last October, so October of 2020. Lando Norris's McLaren had an issue with a few laps left, meaning the safety car had to come out. At the time, Verstappen and Hamilton were first and second, respectively, a few back markers between them. And at that race, Michael Massey, the FIA race director, said there's a requirement in the sporting regulations to wave all the lapped cars past. And in Germany, all the lapped cars were waved through. Now, in Abu Dhabi, as I said, only five cars. Only Why B5. the change? This is the thing. Uh, and a lot of people are pointing this out now in recent days. They're saying there's no consistency here that because it was for a championship, Massey decided this is the drama. This is what people want. They don't want the, 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 the season to end on a, a safety car lap. But if, if that had happened and, and Massey had previously had done what he had done previously in, in Germany the year before, Lewis Hamilton would be the world champion for a record-breaking uh, eighth time and would have overtaken Michael Schumacher. Instead, only some of those cars were waved through and it, it turned out Daniel Ricciardo, who actually finished the race in 12th in Abu Dhabi, was the one behind Verstappen and Hamilton in the final lap and had that uh, perfect view. Like even Ricciardo was asked afterwards, so he was sitting in 12th position, but actually the one directly behind uh, Verstappen and Hamilton as things stood because of the, the laps. He says, I don't want you to ask me, I want to ask you, tell me what happened. He said, crazy, crazy, crazy finale. At the end of it, it was kind of weird. They said cars can't pass, the lap cars, then some of them did, but then I wasn't allowed to. We did a one-lap restart. I'm sitting right behind Lewis and Max, like, why am I here? I don't know. It was very interesting. So, look, one of the most exciting uh, last race title deciders in history. It was the first time since uh, 1974 the two title rivals yeah. went into the final race level on points. That was the season where Emerson Fittipaldi uh, beat off Clay Regazzoni to the to the title. But, I mean, high drama at, the, at its very best, John. And look, it really, really sets it up very nicely for next year. George Russell is joining uh, Mercedes, taking Valtteri Bottas' seat. So it'll be a, an all-British pair of Russell and Hamilton for Mercedes. Russell is someone who will be challenging in the next three to five years for a world title. Max Verstappen is already there. I mean, it really, really... Look, Hamilton's going to be back. He wants to win that eighth world title, but uh, it sets it up very, very nicely indeed. Call it Netflixization. Call it uh, Formula One drama at its very best. Either way, I'll be back. I'll be watching Bahrain next year. That's one thing for sure. Of course you will, because you know you're. This is your thing, so that's that's completely understandable. Um, I would have loved to have seen the rules consistently applied and the race to finish behind the safety car. I thought it would have been weird. It would have been beautiful. Mm. It would have honoured the fact that Lewis Hamilton was the best driver by a clear margin on the day. I can't understand how you could be over 10 seconds ahead of somebody to be in a sitting duck within a space of a few minutes. Mm. That is wrong for me. Sport, now, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not, not in with 
uh, the 2021 trends. But sport for me is about rules and actually about fair play. And my life is wholly governed by fairness. And I think Lewis Hamilton didn't get a fair crack. I don't blame Max Verstappen or Christian Horner in any way. They just played by the rules that were set for them with a race director who had too much control. And um, it was a little bit cloudy and it shouldn't have been cloudy. But as you say, look, <laughs> it was a, it, 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 like all these shiny things. You can't take your eye off and you can't take your eye off at the <laughs> entertainment. So, um, uh, yeah, look, you're probably right. Everybody's going to be glued to it now in the spring. And I just hope the sport can, can, can maintain a, a be above the parapet of, of, mm. uh, from an integrity point of view. If this happened again, I think it can happen once and we can all go, wow, what was that like? Because Prost and Senna did go off at the first turn in 1990. Uh, so these things can happen in Formula One. But if it, if it continued to happen, then you'd, you'd, you know, you'd wonder as it turned into a little bit of a circus, you know? So um, I think I'm up next, am I? You're up next, John? Yeah, golf. Okay, Leona Maguire. Yeah, Leona Maguire and Phil Nicholson. They're the two stories golf-wise for me. Uh, like the Ryder Cup is worth touching upon, but not, not in too much detail. Leona Maguire is going to be a major champion. She's, uh, she's a neighboring county, you're Shane, in, in Cavan. Uh, 177th in the world rankings last year. Now 43rd, 27 years of age. Nothing flashy about her. Um, fairways and greens type of player, but was the world amateur number one. She's been fined in a way in the United States. That's not easy to try and make it on the tour. But she had a couple of runners-up finishes this year. She finished with a 61 in a major championship, five top tens. But it's all about one thing for me. And the reason why she's going to be a winner and a champion and an Irish major champion in the future, in my view, is her mental strengths. The reason, the example for that, the Solheim Cup. She's a rookie. She's turning up for the first time for Europe. They don't normally win in the States. They only won once before they went to Inverness in Ohio this year to play the USA. Four and a half points out of five. Played in all five sessions. Set the tone with Mel Reed. They beat the quarter sisters. Nettie Corder, the world number one. Then she beat Jennifer Cupcho in the singles, if you remember, five and four. The putts went in, the fist pumps, the pure steel that Leona Maguire showed. Like sometimes in sport, people come of age. Brian O'Driscoll in 2000 against uh, France with a hat trick. That was the moment, you know, wow, Brian O'Driscoll's really arrived here. Or Ruby Walsh winning the Grand National, actually, that same year on Papillon. Or Katie Taylor uh, winning the Olympic gold. Um, to confirm all the promise that she'd shown, uh, or Kelly Harrington this year. People arrive, people arrive, people are there. People are there then forever. Ronnie Delaney, it's 65 years this year. He's there forever as that man who won in Melbourne. And for me, Leona Maguire has put her stamp almost like a halfway there now. And I think the major will just confirm what she did uh, in Inverness. Um, so I think like Tiger 97 as well just came onto the scene. So from an Irish sporting point of view, Leona Maguire, I think is going to have a great future ahead of her. And I, I really, really do hope that she can win that major. And remember like her sister, Lisa as well, was such a huge part mm. of it. And I think they're, you know, they grew up together playing golf together and she's got uh, Dermot Byrne on the bag now. And I really do think she's well set. Phil Mickelson, like golf has been played for 160 years at major level. And uh, we've never had a 50 year old win a major championship. And I know uh, players are fitter now and, and, and look, health is better and all that kind of thing. But for Phil Mickelson to win that PGA Championship at Kilo Island uh, was just a great story. Um, you know, there was that moment when the crowd and somebody jumped on his back. Uh, they're just following him like, like something like a Pied Piper. Uh, when he's walking down 18, he's, like, he's face down Louis West Hazen, Brooks Kepka, all these players. I was going through the ages. 29, 26 and 24 were the other three major champions ages this year and Phil Mickelson at 50 years of age. He, behind Tiger Woods, is the best player of the last 25 years. A magical short game, and he played with composure uh, to keep the ball on the fairway, and he played within himself. Like, he'd no form coming into it, he's no form after it. To be able to channel at 50 years of age, your concentration, your emotion, and your ability into four great rounds of golf to win the PGA Championship by two shots, uh, he deserved fully to be drinking wine and out of the Wanamaker Trophy, which is what he was doing, and drinking lots of coffee. And I think Phil Mickelson is one of the one of the heroes, one of the greatest sports people we've seen in golf. Six major championships. The Ryder Cup for me, like it's really disappointing from an Irish perspective that Patrick Harrington was the captain and we didn't win. 19 points to nine. It's just, I think these things are cyclical. America have great players at the moment. And Rory crying and Shane Larry, the emotion that came out of him, you could see that he loved every moment of it in that team uh, background that he came from in GAA. And I'm really excited about golf next year, Shane. 2022, Shane, Rory McIlroy going for that Masters after winning his 20th PGA Tour title this year. 
Uh, Victor Havland of Norway is very exciting. John Ram won a major this year. The Americans, you've got Dustin Johnson, Xander Schaffler, Patrick Cantlay, and Colin Marikawa. I can't wait for next year. But yeah, Leon Maguire was the highlight of my year. Yeah, undoubtedly. And um, like Phil Mickelson is one, the quirky character. I, I, you'd, you'd argue golf is, is a sport that needs those quirky characters. Like he, I think of Alex Higgins and Snooker and what he did for that, for the sport. Phil Mickelson is that person who in interviews, you want to turn the interview up because you don't know what he's going to say. And he's a, he's a bit of crack. Um, but Leona Maguire, um, I don't know what's left to be said about Leona Maguire, but uh, as a Monaghan man, we don't often uh, praise County Cavan people, sports people, whatever you might say, but um, I would absolutely have no problem making an exception for Leona Maguire because uh, what she achieved at the Salim Cup was was special. Um, everyone could see that. I know everyone back in Ballyconnell and County Cavan will be, will be so proud of her and what she achieved this year. And the scary thing is, I mean, she's only, what, 26 years of age, I think maybe. Uh, certainly was 26 during the Salim Cup, but her best days are probably ahead of her. Um, and, and she can become one of our great sports people. It seems strange to say that after what she's already achieved, but um, what she can do in the future, uh, who knows? And, and like I, I just while you were speaking there, I wanted to, to quickly look back. We, of course, did on, on off the ball our uh, Mount Rushmore's of different counties. Um, and I was All right. quickly Googling the, uh, the Cavan Mount Rushmore. So it was Katrina McKiernan, Paul Brady in handball, Mick Higginson from Gaelic football, three-time All-Ireland winner. And then Leona Maguire was put in by Paul Fitzpatrick uh, of the Anglo-Celt, replacing Dave McIntyre's choice of John Joe O'Reilly. But um, yeah. Paul had the, the final say and got to replace one towards the end. And he put in Leona Maguire. And I think he summed it up quite well in his, uh, in his words. He said, what she has achieved, and this is, by the way, before the Solheim Cup. This is, uh, this is back in May of 2020. Uh, so way before the Solheim Cup. And he said, uh, what she has achieved, I would be off the belief that if she put down her golf clubs tomorrow and never played again, she has done enough to be on to be on any Mount Rushmore. Twenty five years of age at the time. If you look back through her career, she was winning adult scratch cups at the age of twelve, along with her sister Lisa. She won the Scottish Amateur at Troon at the age of fourteen. Uh, the ordinary hacker like me, if I go to Troon, I'm driving past and stop to take a photograph. At fourteen, she's out there playing in this course and beating the top of the amateurs in the UK. She turned pro already; has got a top five finish. If you think about the depth of talent there is in golf, I would say Leona is right up there. That was in May 2020. Paul Fitzpatrick said that. She went on to, to do what she did and become the, the highest scoring amateur ever with four and a half points out of five in the, yeah. uh, the Salim Cup. So uh, clearly uh, well-deserving of her Cavamount Rushmore place and uh, and a lot more. Well, you mentioned earlier on Malachy Clerk and one of the best articles I ever read on sport was about the Cavan Monaghan Gaelic football rivalry. And there was an <laughs> old lad who said to a young lad who was kind of down in the dumps, what would you be uh, worried about? Sure, the hay saved. And it was either Cavan or Monaghan bet. So it was the line. All the matters. Who's on the Monaghan Mount Rushmore briefly? The Monument Rushmore to the top of my head was Tommy Bow, Barry McGuigan, Nudie Hughes, and it was Brendan McInesby. So a couple of Gaelic football heads. Barry McGuigan, obviously world champion boxer, and Tommy Bow, given what he's done for, for Ireland and the Lions. So it, it probably wrote itself. Conor McManus maybe I might count himself a little bit unlucky, but it's a good sporting county, uh, John. I think you'll agree. We have the McKenna brothers now, of course, in the boxing ranks. Kevin McBride. Knocked out Mike Tyson, albeit towards the end of Tyson's career. Um, and Jonathan Douglas, few caps for Ireland as well. So a good county for sport. But uh, yeah, I think that the top four wrote themselves, really. Listeners out there, on Christmas Day uh, across Ireland, a good exercise maybe for you to think with your family, the top four sports people in your county. I, I, I picked the Dublin one chain and I picked, mm, you, could have, you could have, you could have, you could have 50. I picked Jim Gavin, uh, Brian O'Driscoll. Audra Carrington and Paul McGrath. So mm. if I was going to pick it again, I'd probably pick four different names. Uh, <laughs> but but they, were, but they still are the four that I would have picked. Um, your next choice is sports-wise? I'm, uh, I'm heading to rugby, John. And uh, oh, okay. the, win, the win over the All Blacks, we have to, we have to touch on that. I mean, uh, rugby gets a little bit of hate in this country, I would, uh, I would say. I, I, think, I think from, uh, from non-rugby quarters, when we beat the All Blacks in a, in a November international, whatever it might be, the uh, the dominant atmosphere among um, anti rugby fans is Ash. It's only a friendly. Uh, this game doesn't matter. <laughs> the All Blacks are to, they're not putting out their strong team. The reality is, November internationals, autumn internationals do matter to rugby fans, to rugby players, and they're not friendlies. Uh, you only need to look at the sheer um, level of of pure uh, doggedness in these games between Ireland and the All Blacks every uh, when they play in November to see that they're not friendlies. But um, we need to stop that pettiness as a nation, I think. We need to 
realize we're very, very good at rugby union uh, for a country of our size. Uh, but John, I mean, this this game at the Aviva Stadium and the tickets were the hottest tickets in town to get to this uh, match in the Aviva. Uh, of course, that the, the plan was to add to the historic wins in 2016 and 2018 over the All Blacks. Uh, and then what happened? A heroic Irish performance, 29 points to 20 uh, win over New Zealand, the third, the third over the All Blacks in 33 meetings. So it shows you how rare it is. So to have one in this calendar year was 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 quite incredible. Extending a winning run as well to uh, to seven matches with that win. Uh, they had the um, win over Japan the week before. People going into the New Zealand game, not wondering where their, their game was. But really, I mean, Caelan Doris got man of the match. I just want to point out some of the people who were who were crucial to that win. Caelan Doris, man of the match. But there were outstanding performances everywhere in the pitch. Guy Ringrose was incredible with his bandage on his head. Uh, James Lowe perhaps had his best game in an Irish jersey. The forwards didn't, didn't give up an inch in that entire game. Uh, started really with Johnny Sexton uh, during the anthem. You saw how completely focused the man was. Um, and Ireland started so, so quickly. Uh, and, and clearly that uh, this decision to start from the off paid because um, we had the try from James Lowe, as I said, the eighth cap for Ireland, um, probably his best game for his adopted country, popped up everywhere. But Ireland didn't have it all their own way. They were up against it. Um, tested the All Blacks to the limit, but the, uh, the All Blacks led by 10 points to five heading into the halftime interval. Uh, Jordy Barrett knocked over a penalty, converted a try from Taylor. But that kind of went against the run of play. I remember even the pundits, I remember listening to Tommy Bowe at halftime speaking about the Irish wave that was coming and Ireland probably hadn't converted their 70% possession, seven visits into the opposition, 22 in the first half, yet only five points. So 10-5 they trailed. But then two minutes after halftime, we'd get this try from, from Cuevin Kelleher. Uh, quite, quite important try, it has to be said, from Cuevin Kelleher to uh, change the tone of the game, change the tide of the atmosphere, I think, in the stadium as well, because we'd had the Hacker, of course, pre-game, which is always a sight to see, one of the greatest sights in sport. Um, but then a relentless effort by New Zealand, 238 tackles, against 101 by Ireland in the match, which just goes to show the amount of work Ireland put in uh, and the amount of work they forced New Zealand to have to put in. Uh, a famous, famous victory. Relegated New Zealand, by the way, to number two in the world rankings behind South Africa. So it was a, a defeat that the All Blacks did not uh, want whatsoever. Um, but those two Joey Carberry penalties then in the final seven minutes, uh, they will be kicks that he will remember for, for the rest of his life. And he's a man who's been very unlucky with injury with Munster, but... Certainly, he can look back in his 2021. And if you take out everything else, those two kicks in the final seven minutes, uh, you know, it was only their third time in 41 tests in Europe that uh, the All Blacks had lost. So clearly, when they come to this continent, they, uh, they tend to do quite well. But uh, at this stage, the All Blacks must be looking at this Irish team and thinking, these guys are warriors. Yeah. Uh, there, there's no doubt about it. And a well-deserved victory for Ireland, a famous victory for Ireland, and... Uh, one, I think everyone in the Aviva Stadium and anyone who watched live, uh, even at home on their television sets, will remember for, for quite some time to come. It was the day I broke dry November. <laughs> See, that's, that's the impact it had, John. Well, there you go. So uh, the, it's, it's, I'm glad you didn't mention the Lions tour because that was utterly forgettable. And I yeah. do think fans is everything. Fans is everything. Like the, the environment, the sterile environment in, in South Africa versus anybody who went to that All Blacks game. My nephew, Daniel, was a steward. And... Uh, He's what, 20, uh, 20 years of age. Mm. And just for him to experience that. Um, I'll never forget was, it. Was, he won't. And he was doing his job, obviously, at the time, but you're still able to get caught up with it. Um, and like Brian O'Driscoll was talking about it on OTB afterwards. For over 100 years, we couldn't beat the All Blacks. And it was <laughs> the one big thing in rugby we couldn't do. And then for his like young lad, to bring his young lad, and it's routine. Like we've beaten them three times now since 2016. And you never, you'll never get tired of that chain. You'll never get tired of beating the, the team that has the biggest aura in, in, in rugby. Uh, whoever the world champions are at the time, and I know New Zealand are not right now, they will always have that all-black jersey will always be the, the one to, to, to overcome. And for me, it's all about consistency. Our World Cup record is chronic for a, a sport played probably by about 10 serious nations uh, competitively at it, like that can really challenge the business end. And no semi-finals since 1987 is shocking. And we've got to change that. But with the consistency of you pointed to, if we can get that consistency and Andy Farrell can build with Paul O'Connell and Mike Cat something for France, it's the Northern Hemisphere. If we could just get a run, you never know. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling Ireland are just going to break through at a World Cup and they could reach the final or they could win it. And it's all about us putting ourselves in the position because we've got a lot of talented players 
and hopefully like the likes of Joey Carbill, as you said there, can can flourish and uh, and be ready for 2023. But uh, look, it's it, we're ending the year at a positive note from the men's side anyway, and hopefully obviously we get sort with issues to sort out from the union and the women, and hopefully it will be in a positive manner next year. Um, Gaelic football is my last choice before we get on to your last choice, Shane. Unlikely All Ireland champions, I would describe Tyrone and Midas. So another year not get Gaelic football. Um, the back door gone back to the you know time before 2001 obviously because of COVID um, I don't know how you feel at the end of the year Shane with modern losing to Toronto by point <laughs> not, not, not too good John not, uh, not, not too good yeah. when, you, when you lose by a point in a, in a provincial decider to, to Toronto and they go on to win the All-Ireland you start to question what if um, modern of course have never won an All-Ireland but you can't take it away from that Toronto team what Brian Dewar and Fergal Logan have done with them is they've set the bar They've set the bar for everyone else. They've shown what's possible. Um, you see some of those those players in that team, McGeary, Canavan, McCurry, Niall Morgan, Richard Donnelly. Like, pff, I can't take it away from them. And the fact that they went on to beat that Kerry team and then beat Mayo, well-deserved All-Ireland. And that yeah. pains me to say that as a Monaghan man. It's like the Cavan conundrum all over again, John, but uh, deserving you're, champions you're feeling, has to be said. You're feeling generous on Christmas Day. Very like, generous. It must be Christmas, could, yeah. You know it, it was Christmas. Could, I wouldn't you, say it any other would. day of the year. You would Cavan and Tyrone getting all the, the praise from Shane Hannon today. Um, six goals against Kerry conceded in the league. Uh, it's almost like that was the turning point. Another thing I thought for me, Mickey Harsh was amazing for Tyrone. He is like the, the most important figure in Tyrone Gaelic football history. Three All-Ireland titles. They never won All-Ireland the 403. But maybe the freshness, maybe the freshness was required from Brian Dewar and Fergal Logan. Um, as you say, all these players, Conor McKenna, Kyle McShane with the crucial goals. High balls. A feature of of their wins, uh, and they won five games to win the All Ireland, and uh, they seem to get stronger every time. Like Kerry uh, couldn't finish the job against them, and they got three goals against Kerry. Mayo they beat by five points comfortably. I thought I thought Mayo were very poor in the final. That curse continues, um, and it was I suppose a year we were expecting Dublin and Kerry to be in the final. It just didn't work out that way. Dublin, to be honest, needed to lose. They needed to lose. They needed a reset, and they weren't good enough on the in the second half against Mayo. You'd have to feel very much where Mayo are going to go from here. I don't know. With Dublin and Kerry obviously resurgent next year, given their defeats this year. But I don't know if it was a vintage year, but it doesn't mean the All-Ireland is worth anything less uh, for Tyrone. Connor Myler, Peter Harsh, Darren McCurry, Kieran McGeary. Um, they used all of their savvy and belief. And I think those players would not have won that All-Ireland uh, without those wins in 03 and 05 and 08 and infused with that belief of Brian Dewar, who was involved in, in, in as twice as captain. And they were really, really united. There was the controversy over the fact that they had to, you know, the COVID issue and they had to, um, they weren't able to, to fulfill the Kerry game. Maybe they were fresher. But it, well, all of these things, is a bit like the Formula One and Max Verstappen, all you can do is win it when it's in front of you. And that's what Tyrone did and fully deserved all Ireland wins. In 2015, Mead ladies lost a qualifier to Cork by 40 points. Now, I know Eamon Murray has played a huge part in getting Mead football, which has a good population base, to an all Ireland success. But it really is uh, a golden story. Like they won an intermediate title only this time last year. Then they win the Division Two. Then they beat Cork in a, in a semi final. Then they win the All Ireland against the Dubs. And Emma Duggan, teenage person, setting the, the, the scene with that um, opportunistic goal. And that's one of those just moments again in sport where you go, that's the moment when somebody arrives. And Emma Duggan, who's going to have a huge career in ladies football for me, you'd expect arrive with that with that moment and then you're expecting Dublin to just come back and win that five in a row and uh, assert themselves just didn't happen and from that moment on it's slipping and it's sliding for them and it's slipping away you can just tell it's slipping away Vicky Wall huge but the tenacity of the Mead players they built that from nothing by Eamon Murray getting players to say you know what okay we're going to commit to this we're going to put on the Mead jersey and it was the most one of the most inspiring stories of the year Cora Staunton was in there with me at the time and we couldn't believe what we were seeing that this is actually, you could feel from kind of a bit out that me, they're actually going to do this. And then they did it. And what an inspiration that is to any Gaelic football team in the country that this can be done. Um, it's the art of the possible and it's never stop believing. And I, it was one of the most heartwarming stories for me of the year. Yeah, the, the underdog stories, I think, really uh, just strike a chord of people. And I remember sitting watching that, that Meath game against the Dubs in the final and 
before the game, you're you're sitting down and you're just asking yourself how much are Dublin going to win by here? <laughs> like it's one of those instances because you're just like there's no there's no chance like a team can come from intermediate last year to to winning the senior getting to the final was that was there all Ireland you know in Meads heads but in our heads sorry in Meads heads they absolutely thought they could win it and and went on to do so because even saw them interviewed in the Late Late Show kind of after the the final and, and that's what they said they said we had absolute um, conviction in our heads and in training sessions and in all of our discussions that we were going to win um, that final um, and they went to, to then go and do it uh, is testament yeah to William and Murray and, and it's testament to every single one of those Meath players but um, yeah year of the underdogs I, I mean we were kind of you know harking about the death of Gaelic football when Dublin were on their the run of uh, many, many all Ireland oh, no. there, John. It, 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 it was it wasn't death for me. I can tell you that. Not it's for a, you. Not a, for a dub. A glorious fan. experience. No. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> I say long may it continue. Long may it continue. And uh, <laughs> who knows? Maybe twenty 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 two is uh, is the year for Mayo. Finally, John. Well, Nathan Murphy would be happy if that happened. Uh, maybe he deserves that. What do you got to finish, Shane? Is a snooker? Is a snooker? Of course, a snooker. Of course, it's snooker, ah, John. I have to give some love to the to the um, the lesser minority sports. Like I should mention <laughs> the, the darts as well. Of course, it's Christmas time, so uh, we'll talk about the darts as well. The darts was is ongoing at the moment. The PDC, but uh, back in uh, January, of course, Gerwin Price winning the the PDC World Championship for the first time in his career. He beat Gary Anderson seven three in the final. Took him uh, okay. over Michael Van Gerwen to world number one. So just a quick mention for uh, for darts as well. Of course, uh, Jerry Gilroy mightn't like that. He calls it Brexit down the pub, but um, it's it's worth a mention. And it, it means darts means Christmas, and Christmas means darts uh, for me. Uh, the snooker as well, John, has to be discussed. Uh, look, the, the, the Crucible Theatre has a certain mystique about it. It's just it's one of those places I've been. I've been to a couple of World Snooker Championships in in, in recent years. Of course, not in the last couple because of COVID. But it's uh, one of the special amphitheaters of of modern sport. Uh, the World Championship has been there since since 1977, I think it is, and so many historic moments uh, across the years. 32 players start each tournament, but this year's tournament really enjoyed it. Um, perhaps not as much as the previous year. Uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan winning and the the day of the two mad semi-finals when Ronnie beat Mark Selby in a decider, and Karen Wilson saw off Anthony McGill in a decider, and yet still. There was no crowd at that one. We got a, finally got a crowd, uh, a full crowd for the final of this year's 2021 World Snooker Championship. But the tournament itself was quite exciting. You'd upset in the first round, Stuart Bingham uh, beating world number nine, Ding Jean-Wei, 10 frames to nine. Then in round two, Ronnie O'Sullivan knocked out 12-11 against Anthony McGill, uh, which was a bit of a surprise to say the least. Uh, John Higgins losing to Mark Williams by uh, 13 frames to seven then in the, in the quarterfinals. Higgins, of course, had been world champion four times previously. Um, another notable match, Sean Murphy beating Yang Bing Chow. Yang Bing Chow, the, the Chinese player, had won the Masters tournament earlier this year. And uh, it has to be said, the Chinese players are, are really coming now and they are coming with a, with a flourish. And it's only a matter of time before one of them wins the World Snooker Championship for the first time. You had the, the quarterfinals then, 27th and 28th of April of this year. Uh, that's where the world number one was knocked out. Judd Trump lost to Sean Murphy, 13 frames to 11. Uh, other big name casualties as well, Neil Robertson, Mark Williams, Anthony McGill, uh, and that left in ranking order, Mark Selby, Karen Wilson, Sean Murphy and Stuart Bingham in the semi-finals. Uh, and then the final, of course, Mark Selby uh, getting over the line, 18-16, it's 18-15, in fact, against uh, against Sean Murphy. Sean Murphy, of course, uh, had won the World uh, Snooker Championship once before as an amateur back in 2005, baby-faced Sean Murphy. Uh, but Mark Selby uh, did what Mark Selby does. He grinds out games, four-time world champion now after that win in front of a sold-out sold out crowd. And people forget that that win in the World Championship this year moves Mark Selby level on World Championship wins with John Higgins on four titles. And only Stephen Hendry, Steve Davis and Ronnie O'Sullivan have won more. So Hendry's on seven and Davis and O'Sullivan have both won uh, six World Finals apiece. Um, just what a champion Mark Selby is. He's His fourth World title, his ninth Triple Crown. Uh, he's part of that pantheon of greats now. But a special mention to Sean Murphy just before we finish because he's now Irish, essentially. He's an Englishman, of course. Uh, but three of his four grandparents, um, Sean Murphy, were Irish. On his mother's side, from Donabate, on his father's, from Kilcock and Kildare. Uh, his kids are now growing up in Ballantyre in Dublin. His wife, uh, Elaine, is a professor of chemical biology in, in UCD. And his kids are still have the, the, the little uh, remnants of the English accent, but they run around wearing their Dublin GEA jerseys now uh, for their mother. Uh, but Sean Murphy managed to speak to him for off the ball uh, after that world final. And like he talked about the fist pumps that he had going throughout the tournament to get the, the crowd on his side. 
He also spoke about his, his tough, essentially tough life, his bullying at age 13, penultimate day of year nine. And David Kelly wrote a great piece in the Irish Independent on this a couple of years ago. He says, uh, a couple of years ago, he said, I'd love to say at age 36, I've forgotten, but I haven't and I never will. It was a, an experience that, that left a mark on him and actually forced him to be homeschooled for the remainder of his school days. And he's had other dark days. You know, the coronavirus restrictions led him and other players to having spent a lot of time away from their family. Um, in July of 2020, he lost his, his best friend and, and former manager, Brandon Parker, uh, to cancer. So he's come through a lot, Sean Murphy. Um, but really... Uh, he was the story for me of the World Snooker Championship, although Mark Selby certainly writing himself into the history books with a fourth uh, World Snooker title. But uh, another exciting World Snooker Championship, John, and uh, who knows, maybe in April or May, if restrictions uh, allow, I'll finally get back over to, to the World Snooker Championship at the Crucible for my, for my third event. Well, you know, you have utter passion for it. It was the first sport I ever watched snooker, 84 final, Davis and Jimmy White, and Davis was my hero when I was doing that in the 80s. So, I'll always have that um, affection for it, and I'm able to, like a soap opera, dip in and out of it. Uh, generally, though, around world, uh, world Championship time, I think China's influence in the sport is, is fantastic, and, and the broadening of the appeal of the sport. Um, so uh, you got to get to Monaco as well next year, Shane. you got to get to that of Monaco course. Grand Prix if you can. Uh, what are you going to do the next few days? I know I'm going to, like you talk about passions there, obviously I can't, I can't, I'm not going to be going to Tottenham Hotspur in the next few weeks, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to try and get to Leopardstown uh, over the next few days. It's always one of the highlights of, of the Christmas season. Um, you're meeting old friends at uh, the hip flask and uh, socially distance and everything and, and maybe trying to get a couple of winners what's what's the plan in Monaghan any rituals in Monaghan over the next few days usually the rituals involve going to the pub and having a few uh, lovely pints of stout John <laughs> but uh, I'm actually I'm going to take the downtime to plan out like I know you're a good man for this and planning out your sporting bucket list I'm going to take a few days to sit down and, and really think what I want to what I want to do I'd love to get to the Indy 500 next year if I can uh, you mentioned Monaco like a couple, myself and a few friends who were unfortunately in Spa last year or earlier in the, this year uh, and didn't get to see much of a race or hoping to head to Monza uh, for the for Italian Grand Prix later this year um, I've got my own uh, endeavour as well you'll, you'll remember I climbed Kilimanjaro a couple of years ago yeah. and, and uh, how do you know someone has climbed Kilimanjaro they'll tell you about it similar to, to uh, running a marathon <laughs> but um, we have uh, myself and two mates have uh, Mount Elbrus in our sights um, not Everest but Mount, Mount Elbrus in the Caucasus region uh, in Russia right along the border, border with Georgia it's the, uh, the highest mountain in Europe um, so over 5,600 metres so it's a couple of hundred metres uh, smaller than, than Kilimanjaro but uh, perhaps more dangerous in terms of the altitude and there's a lot more snow and ice uh, so we'll have to do a bit of training for that uh, we, we booked it we booked it ages ago a year and a half ago whatever it was but of, co of course COVID hit and uh, has put this plan on hold so we're hoping for maybe an April, May, June between those three months we'll, uh, we'll make a summit attempt and see can we see can we get to the, the highest point of Europe as we, as we got to the highest point in Africa so that's on my to-do list there'll be a bit of planning over the well, next few days I think well, listeners out there, um, I hope you've all got great plans for 2022 as you enjoy your Christmas Day. From a sporting perspective, it's always great to see these events and the adventure and the experiences. I think life is a collection of experiences. If you're making, able to collect an experience if you're a sports fan, whatever it might be, whether it's your local team or a kid's team, an underage team that you're watching or coaching, uh, or anything that you're involved in. If you're going to the height of a, a Wimbledon or a World Cup or rugby or, or big rugby, rugby games, enjoy it. Plan it out for next year. I'd love to go and see the Masters. I'd love to see Boca Juniors, River Plate in Argentina and all these things you can aspire to and hopefully get to. Shane, thanks so much for reviewing the sporting year with me. Great stuff. Thanks, John. Happy Christmas to everyone listening. And happy Christmas to you and your family and everybody. The Saturday Panel on Off The Ball.